Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, May 31st, 2021, and we're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Euro, a freelance fish discussion artist. So we've been hearing a lot about a lake sturgeon caught in the Detroit River recently. So we figured we'd hop on down to Michigan for this week's Fish of the Week. We have with us today staff from our Alpena Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office, Detroit River Substation. We've got Justin Scheidt, who's a fish biologist, and Jennifer Johnson and Paige Wiegren, who are bioscience techs. Welcome, you guys. Hello. Hi. So it's an understatement to say you three caught a big fish recently. How big was this fish? It was 240 pounds, uh, 6 feet 10 inches long, and about a half inch shy of being 4 feet around. Just take us there that day. What was it like to catch this fish? Once upon a time in a land far, far away. We, so uh, it was uh, myself, Jennifer Johnson, and Jason Fisher, who we were all out on the boat that day. We had five uh, set lines to pull, and we had already pulled three of our five, and we had only caught one, what seems like a small fish now, looking back at it, and one five-gallon bucket. Jenny was driving the boat and then Jason was actually pulling in the line and I was up at the front of the boat. Jason was handing me hooks as he was pulling in the line and we were probably what, like 10, 12 hooks in before Jason had said, it feels like there's a tug here. It kind of acts similar to a fishing pole. If you were to have a fish on the line, sometimes they tug and you can feel it and maybe predict it. So Jason said he felt a tug. Jenny and I were like, okay, you know, it could be a couple hooks down. Jason keeps pulling and he's like, okay, yep, there's definitely something on here. And all of a sudden the fish kind of just appeared over the side of the boat. We see this gray and white shadow come up. And when both Jenny and I saw it, we both looked at each other. We're like, this is a big fish. This is a really big fish. And I remember thinking like this fish cannot get off because if this fish gets off the hook, no one's going to believe us. <laughs> Before this, the largest fish that Paige and I had handled was 123 pounds. And so when I saw the fish, I was like, oh, my God, that's a big fish. That fish has to be like 150 pounds. <laughs> like, you know, it's a bit bigger than like the one we'd seen before. But yeah. I nearly doubled it. Going to need a bigger net. Once we finally got the fish in the net, we just kind of sat there for a second and we're like, OK, we have it in the net. Now what? How are we going to get this in the boat? And Jenny was able to leave the helm for a minute. And on the count of three, all three of us just heaved the entire fish into the boat. And it wasn't really until that moment when we had the fish on the deck where it kind of sunk in with us. Like, okay, this is the biggest fish we've ever seen. And, and whoever's idea it was to use, I believe it was Jenny being used sort of as the measuring stick for reference image there. Uh, whose idea <laughs> yeah. was that to get you to lay down there with the fish? It was actually kind of one of those where it was like laying next to this fish. It was just, it was crazy. It, like I happened to like kind of after the picture was taken, reach over and like pat it. And it was just like, oh my God, this is just a solid mass of fish right here. And to be totally honest too, she is the shortest one out of our bunch. So for extra dramatic <laughs> effects, we had to use 
I'm five six, so I'm not that short. So once you have this fish on board, like what did you do with it? What measurements did you take? And then how did you get it back out of the boat and back into the water? Well, we took we took a minute to try to figure out how we were going to safely and officially kind of manage this fish and then keep, you know, ourselves safe as well. So traditionally that the measuring board that the fish is laying on sits over our live well tank and the fish will be in the live well. And then we lift the fish up onto the measuring board. Um, Just based off the struggle, we had to get the fish in the board. We didn't want to mess around with lifting the fish with the possibility of maybe the fish hitting its head or just, you know, safety reasons wise. We left it on the deck. We put the measuring board on the deck. We took total length, fork length, girth, check the fish over for any lamprey wounds, try to tell the sex of the fish. In past years, we've used a portable ultrasound machine where we can actually take ultrasound images to see if there's sperm or eggs. And then we started this year, a colleague from Michigan State University is able to tell male or female the sex from just a tissue clip. So we just take a small clip from the caudal fin of the fish and then each fish gets two tags that were previously mentioned, a, a cinch Floyd tag at the dorsal fin, and then a pit tag just right under the skin behind the skull of the fish. We had to be very creative with uh, weighing this one, and we happened to have the ratchet straps that we used to like tie the boat down in the gunnel of the boat. So we ended up having to like use the ratchet strap and kind of like a pulley system to like actually lift it to weigh it. That's creative. Wow. We were able to get just enough off the deck of the boat to get an accurate weight. And we were, we were, we were mainly focused on just, again, the health of the fish. So constantly running water over the fish and through the gills and things like that. So the whole process probably lasted about maybe two to three minutes before we were able to get the fish back in the water. How'd you guys get it back in the water? Right on. Did she kick away real quick? Well, we, with the combination of the pulley and the ratchet system, we're able to kind of ratchet it up high enough that it met the same height as the gunnel of the boat. And then all three of us held onto the net stretcher and just kind of very carefully lowered it down and it slid through the net stretcher back off into the water. (laughs) So this was a pretty old fish too, right? It takes them a long time to get to this size. How old do you guys think this fish was? Yeah, so the Michigan DNR has uh, been aging sturgeon for... Gosh, about 25 years now in this same system. We also age some of the fish as well. And they have a pretty good knowledge of how old they think this fish would be based on the thousands of other fish that have been captured. So based on the ages of other fish, we estimated that it was over 100 years old. And that was just our our best guess, really. We can't, once Lake Sturgeon reach a certain age, it's really hard to age them because their annuli that they lay down on their spines or whatever age structure you're, uh, the rays, sorry, um, age structure you're using to age them. It's just, they get so compressed and it's hard to tell the age. So one of the things we want to do is maybe take a, a technique that folks in Wisconsin did about 10 years ago and use like carbon dating of the tissue yeah. sample to see if we can get a more accurate age of this fish. That's so cool. I was thinking last night about how much has happened over the past hundred years, like Great Depression, women's suffrage, like, you know, multiple wars. It's just that fish has been swimming around that system while all those things have been happening and just kind of doing its thing. It's very neat. We did put together a timeline of significant events 
in the city of Detroit. But when we were putting that together, like women's suffrage is the first one that popped up, right? Like in 1920. And I just, I think people maybe are locally anyway, it took off because of relating it to some of the cities, uh, the events in the city's history. But yeah, definitely has, has gone on for sure. I think it's also worth kind of looking into like histories within the Lake Sturgeon fishery itself. Because I was reading, like, it used to be that sturgeon were almost kind of a nuisance species, break nets and stuff like that. And people would stack them like cordwood and power steamboats. And eventually people caught on to wanting the caviar and wanting the meat and overfishing started to occur. And then more recently, you've had a lot of recovery efforts put in place to try and rebuild these populations. But it's possible that this fish could have been alive back before sturgeon were even valued. I think what's really interesting too, all the environmental changes that this fish could have been been a part of. I mean, the, the dredging of the Detroit River, making uh, commercial shipping lanes, loss of habitat, added in habitat. Like it's, it's pretty interesting to think about what that fish could have possibly seen. What all has contributed uh, to this fish's decline and what are we trying to do uh, to help bring it back? One of the big ones is habitat fragmentation as far as... Um, loss of populations go right like so in many of the systems where lake sturgeon spawn or historically spawn they're anadromous like you said they go up the tributaries to spawn on these rocks and um on this suitable spawning habitat but dams have been placed there now where they historically weren't so a lot of that historical spawning habitat has been lost and they can't and they don't have access to it right now Pollution is is a, another thing that has been probably has contributed to their decline. And then um, we already touched on just commercial fishing, commercial fishing and, and over harvest. Yeah. And these fish are really late maturing, right? I was reading that females, you know, getting into their 20s before they're mature. So any kind of response to conservation work takes a long time with a species like this, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The females, yeah, it could be into their twenties before they're mature. And then they also don't spawn every year. It's every three to five years, I believe for females and maybe two to three for the males. Yeah. And these older females are really important, right? I think I was reading somewhere it would said like for every pound a sturgeon weighs, like a female sturgeon, they produce, you know, I don't know, five to 7,000 eggs. So this one you guys caught is like a really important female, correct, for the population once they get big like that? Yeah, there were likely, it's hard to say how many eggs, you know, were were in the fish, but on average, the fish that we typically collect, there's been studies out there, fish, you know, females of about 30 kilograms have about 400,000 eggs uh, in them that they they lay in a given year when they're going to spawn. So this fish was... Gosh, I forget how many kilograms, Jenny and, and Paige, but so. Total, well, I believe in kilograms, it was 109. So maybe upward, it's hard to say, but maybe upwards of a, a million eggs. So why, if there's those fish out there, are there still so few sturgeon, relatively speaking, to what, what they once were? What percent of these millions of eggs that are uh, being laid and hopefully fertilized actually survive to uh, reproductive age? It's estimated that only... Uh, that less than 99.99% of the eggs hatch. And then less than like 99.99% of the larvae that are hatched actually make it 
further than that. Like for the Detroit River, we estimate there's 6,500 lake sturgeon. That's our, our best guess based on our market capture work. Say if even half of them are female fish, say that's you know, around 3,000 females, and then only 30% of those females might spawn in a given year. You know, you start reducing the numbers pretty quick when you add up some of those mortality rates. So you have never come across this fish before in your your trapping work? No. Your catching work? No. No. Okay. This, I, I mean, yeah, we were anticipating a possible recapture, but it's kind of cool to see that, you know, she's never been caught by her gear and how many years the study's been going on. And overall, the fish was really clean, too. You check them over for lamprey wounds. There wasn't a single lamprey wound on the fish. No major scars or marks from maybe like a ship strike or, you know, running into something or a predatory mark. Like it was a really, really pretty fish. <laughs> We've covered white sturgeon on this show before, and now people can go up to the Fraser River and catch eight plus foot white sturgeon all the time and it doesn't make news. Why was a fish of this size making news? What's the difference between the white sturgeon and these, uh, the lake sturgeon that was this particular species? So one big difference between the species is that lake sturgeon are purely freshwater. They stay in freshwater their entire lives, whereas uh, white sturgeon will go out into the ocean. So I think that kind of also helps them get a bit larger. Lake sturgeon, I'm Justin, correct me if I'm wrong, can get up to potentially eight feet and over 300 pounds, but there's very limited records of them actually being that large. So this fish was like in the 99th percentile of its size class at the 610 that you found. Yeah, I mean, we, we capture, we've captured thousands of sturgeon in this program and with the Michigan DNR over the last 20 years in the same system. And this fish is the largest by nearly a hundred by a hundred pounds compared to any of the other thousands of fish that we've captured prior to this. So I would say that's an accurate statement. Okay, here's a question then for you. This big one that you just caught, because on these big white sturgeon, every once in a while, I was like, ah, you could fit a basketball down its mouth. What's the largest ball you think that you could foot put down the mouth of this fish you caught? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Good question. I have I one. I don't know if the other ball. <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, what? Oh, it's softball. Okay. Oh. Yeah. What do you think, Justin? Um, I don't think I could get a better answer than Jenny. So a softball would probably be, in my mind, pretty good. Huh. <laughs> So we usually do a segment where we talk about eating the fish if it's appropriate, you know, what species it is. But what, you know, when folks catch these fish and keep them, are they eating them? You know, what do they like to eat? Have you guys had any experience on that kind of side of things? I have not. I really have not had a lot of experience with that. You know, most people will say, um, I don't know if this is consistent with what Jenny and Paige, you've heard, but it's like, I guess I've heard that there, I've heard from a couple of people that they taste really good. And then I've heard, well, they're good smoked. And that's the extent of it. Have not really. Yeah, that, that's it. And I don't hear that from too many people, I would say either. Just just because there's uh, not a lot of people who are are keeping them. OK. 
Yeah. And if you do hear about it, I feel like it's definitely more from like our, our grandparents generation where it was kind of common during their time frame, eat this, this species. So are there any misconceptions about Lake Sturgeon or their habitat that you all would like to address? I had two things, I guess I'd like to share. One of the things I heard Jason say this on another episode or, or uh, another um, project and when, when he was talking about the fish and they talked about like, well, why do you think you don't ever catch fish this old? Right. And I know we covered it uh, already a little bit early on, but a lot of these fish were just taken out of the system. Right. Like when we say like, wow, why don't you ever catch a hundred year old fish, 120 year old fish? Well, at that time, there was a large commercial fishery for these fish. So a lot, a lot of them are just, I, I would assume gone. Right. And Jenny touched on it too. You know, maybe this one kind of snuck through, but um, that's one thing. Uh, and then another one is just awareness of, you know, one of the things that I've seen a lot of people in uh, some of the, the social media posts say is like, oh, I didn't even know sturgeon could survive the Detroit River. I didn't know the Saginaw River, one of the other systems we work on. I thought it was so heavily polluted that there weren't any sturgeon could never survive. And many of the systems that we work on in Southeast Michigan are areas of concern in the Great Lakes. We have a sturgeon restoration program on the Maumee River, which is an area of concern in the Great Lakes. Detroit River, area of concern. St. Clair River, the same. Saginaw River, the same. So in a lot of the systems that we work on, they're the largest you know, sturgeon populations that, that we know of. And you know, I think Jason had mentioned this too, is like increasing awareness on some of these areas is something that like all these areas are not heavily polluted and they're, they're areas where there's large recreational fisheries and uh, people are enjoying. Detroit kind of has a bad reputation, unfortunately. And it's amazing. Like the amount of people in this area that care about their waterway and the system and even like the fisheries. So it's like, kind of would be nice to get the idea like no Detroit is not all bad Detroit you know it has its ups and downs but as far as like the waterway and like the fish are concerned people are actually trying to do a lot of good for that I mean it's it's one of the most rewarding things to us as scientists when we're out sampling we have people coming up to us saying hey you know we saw your buoys did you catch any sturgeon today they know what we're up to I mean, multiple walleye fishermen, commercial fishermen, different things like that. They're, they're coming up to us and they know of the research that we're doing. And that to me, I mean, that's pretty rewarding knowing that our message is getting out there and people are becoming more and more aware of the species and just the whole entire Detroit River, St. Clair River system as a whole. I mean, it's pretty awesome to see. And another thing is that the Detroit River International Wildlife Refuge, you know, just recently opened uh, on the Detroit River. And so hopefully, you know, we'll be able to share the story and, and share, you know, some of these resources with a lot of other people. So. Well, thank you, Jenny and Justin and Paige so much. This was an incredible fish story. And we're so happy that we got to learn a little bit more about this amazing fish and this amazing place that you guys work. Super cool. Yeah, I love talking with y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for reaching out. We hope you get out there and enjoy all the fish. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. 
The show is produced by David Hoffman, co-produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. We'll be right back.